0: This week, we welcome Farah Mavatuna, the founder and CEO of NetSparker, for an interview talk about web application scanning and discovery. In the leadership and communication segment, uh, of course, Jason's here with me today, don't let your expertise narrow your perspective, don't be blinded by your own expertise, and the smartest even cities in the future of urban development. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. How do you stay ahead of attackers while trying to maintain the strength of your current security posture? At TrustedSec, they believe research goes hand-in-hand with security consulting. In addition to their established security offerings, they continually advance their own expertise with a dedicated, experienced research team led by Carlos Perez that works on short and long-term projects to assist their consultants during engagements, developing proprietary attack vectors, and investigating new threats. Go to trustedsec.com forward slash security weekly to learn more about the pioneer. Research team at TrustedSec. Security can't solve crucial problems when they have to wade through thousands of alerts a day. With ServiceNow, you can easily prioritize and respond to your most crucial business threats. That way you can go from overwhelmed to under control. ServiceNow brings security, risk, and IT together on one platform. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash ServiceNow. Welcome to Business Security Weekly, episode number one twenty-nine, recorded on May twentieth, two thousand and nineteen. I'm your host, filling in for Mr. Matt Alderman, uh, Paul Sidorium, joined by my co-host Jason Albuquerque. We are both here in G Unit Studios. Jason, How are we welcome. We doing today? It's great to be Dude, here. Fantastic. We're finally
1: getting some great weather here in New England. Yes. So. I don't know if you noticed, I'm a little reptilian from being out in the, the sun that's coming out. So I
0: did. Uh, yes, I got. I'm uh, shedding my winter skin. I'll admit the reason I'm wearing this hat is because I have this like pretty gnarly tan line because I wore this hat to my son's baseball <laughs> awesome. game, and I took it off. Later that day, and I'm like, oh, guess oh I'm boy. wearing this hat for a little while. Oh. That's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> but it's nice so, to finally have some nice weather here. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Security Weekly is returning to Las Vegas this August for Black Hat and DEFCON. If you would like to request a briefing or sponsored interview on-site at Black Hat, please go to securityweekly.com forward slash booking. Submit your request. You can book, uh, again, a free briefing, which are very, very limited, uh, a sponsored interview or sponsor one of our shows that will be recorded at Black Hat. So make sure you do that. All of that is available at securityweekly.com forward slash booking. Also, some of you have told us you're overwhelmed by the amount of content that we distribute. If that's you then you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe click the button to join the mailing list and we'll be working in the back we are working in the background in fact Uh, in fact I owe the developers some stuff uh, to be able to send you a notification when we produce content that is in your interests. Uh, let's see, I think that's it for announcements. Farah Mavatuna is here with us. He's the founder and product manager at NetSparker uh, and is here to talk about web app scanning. Farah, welcome to the program.
2: Hey, nice to be back.
0: Yes, nice to have you back as well, Farah. So I wanted to start by talking about um, when I put myself in the shoes of a CISO, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that is, at least I would be struggling with is do I really know what all... Where my web applications are, how many do I have, yeah. and a little bit about those, like are they developed in house, are they third parties, is it a combination of each, like just really getting an asset yeah. inventory of your applications, Jason. You're oh, a CISO, right? Oh, absolutely, I'm sure I, You know, I would say this is one of
1: your concerns as well. Asset management in general, mm-hmm. and then
0: never mind, you know, bring it down
1: to the the application level and knowing all the applications, right? Um, a- asset management from from a hardware perspective is a little bit easier. Absolutely. Um, but the things that we struggle with is, is, you know, you have a lot of that shadow IT going on and, mm-hmm. and you know, folks just kind of spinning up applications across the environment. And and that's a blind spot, right? So, so, yep. so when I saw that this was going to be the topic of today, I was very interested, right? Because how do I minimize that risk by getting visibility into maybe some of that shadow IT that we don't know about?
0: So Farah, how do you discover all the applications that you have and specifically for the web because they can hide, right? Just one website could have a ton of applications behind it.
2: Yeah, yeah, very good point. And I think maybe... Before, one step before that, right, I mean, as you mentioned, looking at a network in a kind of an old school way, hey, this is my IP range, or this is my network, mm-hmm. and let me find everything in there. whether, you know, I've got IoT or devices, you know, network service, whatnot, that's something we used to do. But now with the application, it's kind of more distributed, right? It's very unlikely to find a company and say, hey, here's my IP block that doesn't exist anymore. The stuff is on the internet, on a CDN, on all different IP addresses on all different places. So the approach kind of changed in that sense. In terms of importance of it, I believe there's almost like a layered approach of to see what are your assets. Like, first of all, you want to know all your hosts and the servers, right? And the second step is how many of them are applications in one host, you might have multiple applications. And maybe one layer down, now you're looking at what that server and the application are consisting of. So in one physical device, you might have multiple services, but if you focus on application in one web server, you might have one application, but within one application, you might have bunch of components. You can have client-side components, you can have server-side components. And if you look at the security, any of those components, any of those layers, any of the vulnerabilities, that's going to blow back to you. So you got to kind of uh, need to catalog all of these mm-hmm. and then ensure that, you know, you stay on top of it and they stay secure. So, you know, um, so that's the first step, right? And the discovering applications is kind of what we've been uh, focusing on in two layers, like the web application itself, the host name, etc., and then the following up, what you know, components that it consists of, such as, you know, server-side components like jQuery or, you know, whatever the framework that's built on. And then the server-side components can be, you know, from server to Apache IS, whatever, to one level down, like all the plugins installed on that server, let's say, mod security and which version of that. Or the -the off-the-shelf product like vBulletin or you might have another off-the-shelf product just installed but also can be vulnerable. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, so like the, that's how I kind of, in my mind, looking at all discovery discussion and the asset discussion, multiple layers, and the deeper you go, and you should be going, that's then you feel like, hey, I am in control. I know what does exist in my environment. Or, you know, not even environment anymore. It's almost like in my organization, what belongs to
0: me. Yeah, no, it, and it's so true. And it is a rabbit hole. Uh, and I like the, you know, the example of V-Bullet, right? Do I have something embedded inside my application and then the question is am i using it or not because i feel like sometimes components get in there and there was just a test and someone left them behind but they're still there wordpress is notorious for this Mm -hmm. right if you've got any themes installed inside your wordpress it doesn't matter if you're using them or not the code is still sitting out there and someone could uh, exploit it so that's one scenario Mm -hmm. then i was just going through the code of one of our own applications and like i see a comment like oh you Know this uses jQuery, and I'm like, I didn't know we had jQuery until I looked at all this, you know, started going right. through the source code. Yep. because I wasn't, you know, I haven't scanned it, Pharaoh, which is something you could probably tell from scanning an application, correct?
2: Yeah, that's correct. And as you say, it's like a chain of dependencies, isn't it? Mm. Like, I mean, you might not even use jquery yourself but because of something you used might be referencing to it and Mm -hmm. now it's all package management you just you just download one package and everything just comes with it and you know as a user you're kind of like clueless and that's very very tough and when you scale this problem now you're looking at hundreds thousands of applications all across the place with uh, at least like almost 40, 50 dependencies per modern application today. In any decent complex application server yeah. side client that you can easily get 40, 50 dependencies. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost like, you know, when you look at it from an asset management perspective, taking it down to that next layer, like the CMDB, the configuration management side of the house, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say one of the things that, that's, that's another blind spot is APIs. Yeah. When you're integrating applications together, right? um how do, how do you trust that there's a level of security in there because we know APIs are vulnerable right they can they can be vulnerable to injections to replay attacks you know enumerated resources can can cause issues so mm-hmm. um having visibility into into those API connections between your line of business applications is huge as well
0: yeah and i
2: i said so, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you got got to look at, as you said, another important point, and this constantly comes up, you know, when we work with our customers, hey, I found all these applications, and you know what, half of them, we thought, like, we did not that we only didn't know they existed, but also we know they are like completely useless, they Mm -hmm. should have been just removed, deleted, whatever, you know, kind of removed from our cloud services, or not even exist, or this is an API that's an old API. And we even have an example, I don't know if you guys remember, um, I clearly remember Facebook and Twitter bought, uh, got hacked, um, or got vulnerable due to a legacy API. that that's been forgotten, and later on the permissions have changed. And you know, bug bounty, someone just discovered, oh, there's this Facebook API and you can literally access everything because there's no permission checks. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Right, right, right. Yeah, it, that really, it's interesting. Uh, I'm using a new um, IDE to, to write code. And in Python, right, at the top of your Python file, you have all these import statements. These are all the libraries you're importing. Now the, my new IDE, which is PyCharm. I don't know if you've ever used PyCharm or any of the um, JetBrains. Is it JetBrains Utilities Vera? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm
2: familiar with the JetBrains. Not much, yeah. you know, uh, PyCharm particularly, but JetBrains. Yeah, good yeah. IDEs.
0: <laughs> and so, at the top of your Python file, you're importing libraries. The ones that you are not using anymore are in a gray color. <laughs> and so, like, I loaded the source code, yeah. and I was like, wow there's a lot of stuff that I'm importing that I really don't need anymore yeah. and and you know that's I think a really good example of how an application kind of gets written and maintained over time is going back and cleaning things up doesn't happen because you know drumroll please it could break stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> I, like right, if right, I right. remove an import, like that could break a build. <laughs> I don't want to do that, right? Well, I, th- uh, I think
1: that's, a, that's, a, that's an important topic, right? Because one of the things that I noticed about NetSparker in your, in your services is secure SDLC. Right? That's part of that software development yeah. life cycle is being able to do that. Right? So having that structure um, to be able to go through a process that's defined and then making sure that you know, security is just innately built into the DNA of your SDLC process is huge. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about that secure SDLC side of the house
2: yeah definitely definitely and if you like the, the way i generally explain our approach is the whole complete solution from kind of left to right and i start from the discovery and i say that like look first you need to know what you need to be protecting right and you discover all these applications and that's what netsparker does it's got this, this massive um uh, database of various resources and then discover everything belongs to you and after you discover are uh, you put into certain buckets. So think about let's think about those buckets. Your possibly most mission critical bucket is your actively developed applications. So these are the stuff that your developers are coding and pushing out and committing and releasing and all that. And your second bucket will be your legacy applications that you developed and they might have or may not have private personal information, but they're alive but not actively developed. They are mm. kind of legacy now. And your third bucket may be stuff that doesn't really build in-house, but it's part of your organization. So you need, you know, Mm -hmm. might be storing again, private data, off the shelf products, dependencies and everything like that. So after you discover all of this and put your assets into these buckets, that's where it comes in, in, you know, and they go through different security processes. So the actively developed applications, again, possibly the most important piece of you know, your your list, is where the SDLC comes in place, right, secure SDLC. So that's why the NetSpark integrates itself. And when a new commit is being made, it checks whether it's introduced a new security vulnerability, all dynamic scanning. So it actually waits for the deployment of the staging environment or whatever the environment it deploys to, then checks the website again and issue like API, web service, whatever. And if it finds a vulnerability, it doesn't just create, you know, hey, here is a vulnerability and dear head of security, deal with it. Because that doesn't work. That means if you have like hundreds, thousands of websites, one person or one security team needs to deal with like thousands of issues. Instead, it actually assigns it to whomever committed the code. So that's where the SDLC comes in. Your developer introduced a cross site scripting in half an hour, they got a ticket. In their backtracking environment, in their Jenkins. And they immediately say, oh, sorry, in their Jira, right? So they immediately say, oh, I just introduced a cross site scripting, which I just did like uh, 30 minutes ago. So I know what was wrong. I will fix it. And ideally, I'm not going to repeat it again. And even if I do, then I will immediately get another ticket. So that's where the kind of, I will look into SDLC and how we kind of create the workflow in there. The developer gets like, immediate almost, Mm. close to immediate feedback of the vulnerability they introduced rather than, hey, wait for three months for that test or the pen test, you know, that we're going to do. And then when we come to fix the vulnerability, we are like, oh, yeah, I've introduced 50 variations of this cross-site scripting because I didn't even know there was a vulnerability in the first place. Or, you know, this would have been a vulnerable piece of uh, output. Yeah, yeah, and,
1: and you had mentioned uh, opening tickets in like Jira or, or, you know, some level of a uh, an ITSM type platform, right? So, so I'm assuming integrations with other platforms are, are something that uh, that Nets yeah. does. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It's all about how we can, you know kind of trigger workflow mm-hmm. and we've got a very powerful workflow you can create tools so you can say hey if this is a mission critical website if the vulnerability is this severity if the vulnerability is proven so we prove that the vulnerability is real or not completely automated mm-hmm. and then send this email um, trigger this action on service now send the name Message to the Slack channel, and also create these tickets to these people. Yeah. So you got all this combination, and we got tons of integrations with the CI, CD, bug tracking, messaging, or like ServiceNow kind of uh, business workflow um, softwares, all of that. No, very good, um, and, and
1: from a CISO's perspective, obviously for for you know from from a leadership side of the house. I want to make sure we're streamlining as much as we can do, right? So, so one of the innovative things that I saw when I started researching NetSparker was the fact of this proof-based scanning that you have, right? Where it actually automates a lot of those repetitive activities that we're doing and, and eliminates some of that, you know, th- that human factor and, and really pulls out a lot of the false positives and things of that nature. So by the time it hits the human, the context is real, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's actionable items. So that was really innovative. And I don't know if you can get into a little bit about the, the proof-based scanning um, side of the house and that technology, but it was very, very interesting to me.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, definitely they would love to. I mean, that's something we invented, pioneered mm. and it's unique to us. So when NetSparker finds a vulnerability, it proves it's real. And not it only says, hey, I found a SQL injection, and trust me, it's real. It even goes one step beyond that and it says, ahead of that almost. It says, hey, also here's the proof. Here is the data from your database. Mm. So you know this is real. You, don't even take my word for it, here's the proof. And mm. that's where you know it, it proves the vulnerability. And as you as you said, this changes so many things. This makes it possible that you can scale your web application security. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about a big organization and you know obviously you know this problem, then you have like hundreds, if not thousands of applications in certain sizes. So if you got five, ten average issues per application, then you're easily looking at five thousand issues. Mm-hmm. And if you've got like five people of a security team, which is a decent enough team, and if they're only even focusing on application security, again, it's very unlikely, unless you're a really, really big company, that you've got five people only focusing on this. Even then, 5,000 issues is so hard to manage. So the solution to that, when you prove a vulnerability is real, now you can automatically delegate it to person, whomever is supposed to fix it. If you don't prove it before delegating it, Then what happens is developer gets false positives. And after two, three, you run into the crying wolf problem. And they are like, hey, look, I'm getting a lot of noise. Now I'm going to ignore the real problems as well. And that's just the nature of it. Right. right. Farah, how does that play
0: into a CISO that is, and I think in many organizations, right? You can't write every piece of software yourself. You have to go purchase and or use some open source software. But let's say we've purchased, you know, licensed some software to do a job and now I'm running NetSparker against it and the proof-based mm-hmm. scanning is going, there's an issue. Like there's no denying, like here's the name of the database and all the tables. Right, right. There's no denying that there's SQL injection here. What From a CISO perspective, Farah, what do you recommend that people do? What have been your experiences in discovering vulnerabilities in off-the-shelf software?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, what we have seen and quite the best practice, we generally see our customers create this process. Whenever they work with a vendor, they demand they need to go through, you know, NetSpark security checks before. So mm-hmm. it's very, you know, it's very hard to say, hey, every vendor, you need to go through a whole pen testing process that just doesn't scale. And there are so many problems with it, or the cost wise. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it's very easy to say, hey, whatever we are kind of provisioning in an environment, it has to go through NetSpark, whether in-house, in-built, third-party vendor, whatever. And if they don't pass, they just send the results and they tell the vendor, hey, fix it and come back and we will get you a new scan. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a good benchmark and good baseline to say, I can accept this application into my environment and accept the risk with it. Obviously, you know, having a scan has been done, doesn't, ma- you know, doesn't say it's, it's 100% secure. But it's a very, very big step forward. It's gonna take almost eighty percent, ninety percent of that requirement.
0: Mm. Yeah, and what I found is I've done the manual assessment side of it when the business is evaluating the software. Right. They said, here, here's. It was actually at the university. Here's a couple mm. pieces of software. Right. And one you could just tell from manual tell them like, and it takes time. Right. So now there's a security resource, one of the few at the university right. at the time. I'm taking the time. I'm man- doing some manual testing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one, it was like 80-20, right? Between right. the two different pieces of software, and that factored into the decision not to go with that yep. particular software. Also, how the vendor responded to our, you Absolutely. know, pointing out that there there's uh, vulnerabilities in it. And for what I what I, I think I heard you saying is, you know, after acquisition, but before acquisition, mm-hmm. this is a good practice to go through because you can scan it without taking up time from your team, too yeah. much time anyway. Right and then provide the results to the vendor, and that is in your assessment process. Do you find organizations doing this as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, what you got is a very good point. It can be actually, you know, can change your decision making, right? If the vendor is responding poorly on mm-hmm. a serious security issue, then possibly don't want to work with that vendor because, right. you know, any future issues, they will be behaving in a similar manner. So you're going to run into problems. Well, that's a, that's a very good point. And that's what we see as well quite often, like before or after acquisition of it, depending on the setup. But as you said, the before is obviously better.
0: Mm, absolutely. and. Go ahead. Do you have anything else? Yeah. yeah. I mean,
2: one, one thing about, um, you know, the, the, the proof-based scanning and from a manager CISO point of view, what I found is quite eye-opening. And this is kind of, um, I only discovered this after we shipped our initial versions. And when when I talk and, and talk with uh, big enterprises with this problem and using a solution, one thing keeps coming up and they talk about visibility and accountability. So I never thought about this in, you know, accountability and visibility in those terms as from that position, right? But when you think about it, it's one of the challenges as a CISO, you don't know so many things. And one of your team members can say, "and hey, we got this vulnerability and they can underplay or overplay it as much as they like almost. It's mm-hmm. very hard to understand that deep level. And we have seen so many examples that we sent vulnerabilities to certain teams and they're like oh, false positives or not correct or this or that. So it's very hard to keep track of honest and real results in a large organization. Very bad, when you have vulnerabilities with proof mm-hmm. and when you have clear risk assignment and score and the grouping of the assets that you have. Now, as a CISO, you can wake up, you can look at your NetSparker dashboard and you can say, hey, I've got this level of severity, real vulnerabilities in my high-risk applications. I need to be involved in this. Yeah. Or oh, I need to be getting an email automatically when this happens, which you can do. But that changes the whole accountability, visibility discussion because everything is now recorded, whether it's fixed or not. All the states that be, they've been gone, gone through, mm-hmm. and you know they are real. So you can have a much more productive discussion with your teams. And on top of that you can take actionable insights like hey clearly these teams are introducing more vulnerabilities than they are fixing uh, maybe we should be getting uh secure code training mm-hmm. because yeah. we are not getting actually better it's just like you know we're just patching stuff constantly mm-hmm. but not really systematically improving ourselves
0: yeah. right
2: it's such a key piece of the puzzle
1: here right because if you have a, a fairly mature asset management framework you're using within your organization. You have a fairly mature risk management framework that you're using within the organization. This level of context that it brings to that big picture for someone like myself, allows me to prioritize where I'm putting my resources. It allows me to prioritize where in the organization we're going to actually fund certain initiatives, right? So, So that level of context is key. It's a key piece to the big puzzle for a CISO to make strategic decisions for the organization, right? Because I know the level of criticality for this application, right? Because we have it within our asset management system. But now you're, you know, a, a tool like this will actually bring the context that I need to say, wait a minute, we need to take a step back and focus on this.
2: And that's the key, isn't it? Like, you know, what we see constantly, that we have limited resources. Yep. So we got to allocate them to the right place. This is obviously not just security, this everything in a business, you know, you want to focus on what you want to accomplish and the most important thing in your business. In security, it's like that we got these limited small teams, very limited resources, and the business is constantly saying, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that. So you got to put your bets in the right places. Mm -hmm. But now if you can prioritize what matters and what is really need to be pay attention, what needs to be fixed today, rather than something that can wait another three months, like, hey, uh, we got all these extra security measures that we should be implementing in our web applications. But before doing that, did you know that we got these five applications with very high level of vulnerabilities that is right now exploitable? So that changes the decision making, and you immediately prioritize the right thing versus those long-term things, which you still want to do, mm-hmm. and it's still on your to-do list. But you gotta get that right. What's important today, you gotta fix that, then move uh, move along to do other things. Oh, absolutely! But, but it, that's it, an, it,
0: an important point, and I think for for CISOs to realize too, and developers as well, right? Yeah. Once you fix the, uh, as you were saying earlier, Pharaoh, right, the top twenty percent of your most critical vulnerabilities in your most critical apps that doesn't mean you're done. That doesn't mean you can sit back and go, you know what, we've got this app security (laughs) thing figured out, right? It's a constant cycle. (laughs) You do have to fix, I mean, pretty much address Mm -hmm. everything. I'm not saying you have to go write a thousand lines of code for a really, really small vulnerability. Mm -hmm. You may choose to address that issue in a different way. But uh, every vulnerability needs to be addressed in some way, 100%. and, and sometimes you know, and that's going to differ. Maybe there's a common control. Maybe, sure. as Farah uh, said, there's a secure coding sprint that's coming up three months down the line that's going to address a certain percentage of them. Right? Yeah. It's important, I think, to always be considering addressing all Absolutely. of the issues. In your and, and
1: to your point, Paul, I mean, you just mentioned that whole you know focus on the twenty percent of critical apps, and I sit back and I say, well, what's the root cause of that? Maybe maybe yeah. teams don't have um, the ability to have a tool like this that can take a lot of the tactical activities that they're focusing on on a daily mm-hmm. basis off the plate, right? Because now they're tactically focused on those 20% of critical apps because that's where their bandwidth allows them to be. Mm-hmm. You start pulling those tactical activities off the plate, yep. now they can be strategic across all of the applications instead of just solely focusing on the
0: 20% of the critical. In a, in a development environment that helps the developer, mm-hmm doesn't get in their way, doesn't annoy them too much, right? right? That's right. I found really helps when I switched to a different IDE and it, it can mm-hmm. do just that. It can let you highlight problems, you fix them and you move on. That's right. And it's so much more easier, right? Making it easier for the developer to address those almost systemic issues, right? That's right. That's,
2: right. Yeah. That's all right. And you know, we got in that uh, since I founded it, I've, we got this motto. We say automate what can be automated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when your security team is dealing with stuff like hey send a message to send an email for this vulnerability and explain them the vulnerability and then they tell the security team oh yeah it's not a real vulnerability we tested it It doesn't work and they prove and they say oh we fix it uh and they say oh we forgot to deploy so we got this like almost days of email communication for such a simple task and all these things all this noise i call it Mm -hmm. um, that your developers that your security team is dealing with Can be removed with automation. And once it's done, now they got actually, they can actually leverage their skill set on the stuff that actually matters, which is systematically improving everything, which is uh, a very challenging business vulnerabilities or stuff like that that requires more human attention that cannot be automated. So the key piece of whatever we look at whenever we build the systems, we are like, hey, is this automatable? Can I discover? Can I prove? Uh, can I communicate with the old bug tracking? And tracking? Another great example of this, when we send a vulnerability to a developer in a, their bug tracking tool, when developers click resolve in their bug tracking tool, we two-way sync it and retest the vulnerability. And if the vulnerability still exists, we go back to the bug tracking tool and say, open the ticket again. So, like because this can be automated, so we do automate it, and everything like that. That's the approach. Once you do that, now you are free. Your security team is free to do what really matters, rather than firefighting every single day.
0: Well, and as a developer, I I love that. Right? Absolutely, I, I think that's a huge feature because when I go make a code change, right? Like if you told me today there's a vulnerability in my application, which I'm I'm sure there is, right? I go in and fix it, right? And this is. I think there's a, a difference between a lot of the coding on security mm-hmm. people have done and actually developing a software application that has a lot of components and multiple developers. Right. I go in and make a fix. Now it's one thing, I think it's great. I push resolve, my fix gets tested. I can make sure I have some uh, reassurance that I actually did fix <laughs> the vulnerability, great. But now the next level of testing that needs to happen, I think one of the last times when we were talking about this, now I want you to regression test my entire application right. to make sure I didn't break anything else. And I don't want you to wait six months or eight months before you do that because if you do and you find an issue, now I've got a whole ton more coding to do. But if you can tell me in the same week or two that, hey, Paul, that bug fix you made, like we regression tested and it affected this one other component, I fix it quick, I move on with life. If you make wait months, now it's an issue. Now I've got way more code to rewrite. And despite popular belief, I really don't want to write a ton of code that I don't have to write, right? And do you want, want to go want back to be, six months in the yeah, list, right. I want I to mean, be efficient. Right? And I think we talked about that last time is that yeah, individual testing of one piece component and then regression testing as well and, and Netsparker
2: being able to do that, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, if you think about, you find the vulnerabilities, right? You fix the vulnerabilities. If you, like, I've got this simple kind of guide, right? If you think from the top, all your assets in one place and then you put into buckets actively developed put into sdlc and your legacy and your third party now you do a script scan and this is obviously with netspark it's like a day because it's all you know cloud scalable internal on-prem or not but it's scalable so in a day like imagine this it's actually crazy you build it up you discover and tomorrow you can be looking at easily 1000 assets and in the very same day you do a scan of all of them so in the third day maybe even the second day you actually know which one of your applications are really really vulnerable with proof Mm -hmm. so you can start taking actions so once you got the basis covered now you are like hey okay now these are my known vulnerabilities i discovered i fixed them and once you are there now you need to be doing two things one Integrate SDLC, so the new code is also still secure. So you still know it was secure, I secured it once, it stays secure. Now, schedule scans for your legacy and third party, so they can be constantly scanned. And because NetSparker will create a catalog of what you have, like all the components dependencies and all of that, and will constantly check all the vulnerabilities that might occur on them, new CVs, new zero days, whatnot, and then, Now you are there, so you know your legacy and third parties also stay secure, so that's it. You know, it's kind of like a very easy couple of steps, and you can get from, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what I have, to... I've got a very good understanding of what I have. How is it been yeah. working? What is my risk? What is my exposure? What is my attack surface? Who is responsible for what? Because we got all these responsibility assignments to per asset as well, and who is responsible for um, fixing vulnerabilities for which assets, etc. All can be managed in one place, and then you can sit down and say, "Hey, let me see my dashboard. What are the big actions I, mm-hmm. I can take? Do I need more people?" Uh, Do I need to get more secure code training? Or do I need to be more careful about how I choose my vendors? Because now you know, as real data, what are your big problems? And now you know what is your actual risk and what is your actual state of your security?
0: What what I've personally tested uh, NetSparker. Uh, What I love about it, it it's not just going out and finding flaws, right? That's one thing that it does. It's very much in tune with your process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I- if you don't believe me, uh, what I just saw is on your, your website. Shea uh, Chen, Troy Hunt have given it the steal of approval. Yep. I mean, these are two, pe- two people that you should definitely take into consideration <laughs> their <laughs> opinions. Uh, when I was testing web applications, I would uh, consult with. Uh, with Chechen uh, mm. quite often and uh, he's just uh, an awesome person that evaluates web application scanning mm. tools so if you go to securityweekly.com forward slash netsparker it'll take you to their landing page you can get a demo uh it, i strongly encourage that you do that because it can really help you as farah and, and we were saying c- just get a handle on That's on right. what you have but also i think more importantly fit into your existing and help processes. helps streamline your yes, existing processes. Exactly. Right. Farah, thank you so much for appearing on Business Security Weekly. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Cheers. Thanks so much. With that, we'll take a short break, come back, talk about the business and leadership articles for this week. Stay tuned. Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash B-H-I-S to join their mailing list and view the latest blogs and webcasts from Black Hills Information Security. The modern attack service is vast and permeable, extending from the data center to the cloud and device edge. Security teams are stretched thinner and thinner as they try to cover this ground. The result, more high profile breaches hit the news every day. Don't let your organization be next. ExtraHop delivers security from the inside out, helping enterprise security teams detect threats up to 95% faster and cut staff time to resolve by two thirds or more. Act with confidence. Learn more at extrahop.com forward slash securityweekly. Major data security breaches continue to make headlines. Are you prepared? Standardizing your security framework will help you stay competitive, be a reliable business partner, and manage intellectual property, financials, and employee and customer information. The American National Standards Institute, or ANSI, offers the standards you need in one place through standard subscriptions, a cost-saving, fully customizable solution. Sign up for your free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash ANSI. Welcome back, everyone, to uh, Business Security Weekly. There's likely some more announcements in there that I'm supposed to be reading right now that I'm stalling while the teleprompter (laughs) catches up. Uh, So uh, I said all that. Jason's still here with me. We will be at Hacker Halted in Atlanta, Georgia, October 10th through the 11th. EC Council is offering our listeners a 15% discount uh, to sit for any of their boot camp courses or workshops Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash HackerHalted to register now. They also have a CISO. They do, CISO. Have you been, have
1: you I, been there? I have it. I oh. have the CISO, yeah. You have been there? I have been there, absolutely. Are you there. going this year? I we're am not be going there. this year. This year is going to be Black Hat DEF CON for okay. me. So. Well, yeah, I do cool. have uh, I do have one of my security managers going to uh, Hacker Halted though. So okay. You'll see my my good friend Manny there.
0: Awesome. Right. Awesome. Uh, upcoming webcast with Kaseya SaltStack Logarithm and domain tools are up on securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts make sure you go there and register for our webcasts which are really like free training like the first part is free yeah. training and the second part is understanding what vendors actually do yeah. which is really as you know jason right being Absolutely. a cso and practitioner it's really hard to understand what they do yes it, it is most of our vendors um actually all of our, our sponsors will show you screenshots mm-hmm. they'll show you the actual product yeah. they'll show you videos they're going to show you how it works, and the first part is we're going to tell you a little bit about like basically some free training on the subject. Right, so. right, and, and, and um, I'll tell you, things
1: like these type of webinars are so much value-add because the security product landscape right now yeah, it's is so hard to... to yeah, it is. It, it's absolute insanity, right? So to be able to have... Um, you know professionals actually go out there and vet someone like yourself go out and vet these products and say these are the best of the best and here's why
0: and this is one of the differentiators that and it's been happening lately on our webcast our audience will ask questions Mm -hmm. and what we're now encouraging all of our sponsors to do is to have a live demo available at least available right so when a listener asks a question hey how does this work how does this work? The sponsor can go, oh, here, let me just show you that. Exactly. Like when you do that, you go in here and you look at, mm-hmm. so there's like no blowing smoke. Mm-hmm. There's no smoke in mirrors. Right. like, it's a question. And then the sponsor showing you, here's how it works. Yep. Right. L- literally within the product. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Absolutely. Great. Huge value add.
1: Absolutely. So you got some stories here. Yes. So, so kicking into the leadership articles, I, I grabbed a few stories. Uh, the first one I wanted to, to really jump into, which is you know something that, uh, from from a, a management perspective, I've always kind of had this this knack for looking at um, folks at at the individual level, right? So so uh, the article is called, and it's from Wharton Business School, mm-hmm. and it's called What Really Helps Employees to Improve. It's not criticism, right? And and I think we we talked about this. Uh, before the show last week about how I've been listening to a lot of podcasts mm. from organizational psychologists, and, mm-hmm. and really the whole premise is how do you make work not suck, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So so, uh, so it was funny. I was listening to one of the podcasts from, from Adam Grant, who works for Wharton. He's a professor mm-hmm. at Wharton and, and uh, an organizational psychologist, and he had this podcast with this na- this man named Marcus Buckingham, and he's the head of research and performance at ADP. They know HR, right? Mm. And, and really coming out of it, and he wrote a book, it's called Nine Lies About Work, right? And uh, he co-authored it with uh, uh, an HR leader from Cisco. And what they're, what they're trying to, to push forward is that let's start focusing on strengths. You probably heard of the book, The Strengths Finder. Mm-hmm. Um, he helped co-write that with uh, Donald Clifton. And um, it, it's focusing on the talent theme, right? And having leaders who focus on uh, the individual instead of... The expectation Right This higher level expectation mm-hmm. It's really having a relationship With your employees At the end of the day Right yeah. It's knowing the employee Knowing how they react To certain situations And knowing what their strengths Versus weaknesses are
0: mm-hmm. Right
1: You really can't Peanut butter that Across your entire organization yeah. You can't have so one true. set of metrics Right For your entire right. team You just can't do it Right it doesn't add value. What will end up happening is you'll be uber critical of some folks, but you're not playing to them sh- their strengths. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge part of what this article was about. Um, and, and it was talking about that strengths-based movement as a critical change within HR. We have to start shifting our mindset mm. toward that type, type of a, uh, type of mentality
0: when we're dealing with our, our employees. Really thinking about uh, into the book Good to Great mm. when he talks about level five leaders yes. and how critical that is to an organization's success because you don't need to m- criticize or micromanage level five leaders. That's right. Absolutely.
1: Right. 100%, right? And, and I mean, a, a level five leader innately practices this, right? Yeah. Because they put the effort and the time in to know the folks that they're working Correct. with. Right? Correct. Because what motivates me isn't necessarily what's going to motivate you, right? But at the end of the day, you wa- still want that level of outcome yes. from both of us when we're working on a team together.
0: It, it's interesting that it, li- having surrounding yourself with level five leaders means that your job at the top of the organization mm-hmm. is to really set the goals yeah. and build the culture. That's right. And all the, the work will just do it, it, it gets done by the level five, right, five you, leaders, right? right? And it's right. really an interesting. It changed the dynamic that I had previously oh, considered, 100%. like yeah
1: and they call it remedial deficit thinking. That's the mm-hmm. old school way of doing it, right? Where you look at an individual and say, oh, wait a minute, they're weak in this aspect. Hold on, I have to focus there. No. That's not necessarily the case. No. That does not work, right? Yes. A person's I weakness agree. is gonna be their weakness. You can help them shore up that weakness, yep. but in order for them to perform and be high performers, you wanna focus on their strengths, right? Because you surround, as, as a level five leader, you're surrounding yourself with the best of the best talent out there, and you're able to identify gaps within your team yep. so that way you can fill those fill gaps them, with all up. the strengths yeah. that's right
0: yeah absolutely I, I, and that's i it took me a while to really yeah. you know kind of grok that that right, right, theory right, right. but i think it's what uh, enables organizations to really propel and be high mm-hmm. performing high functioning teams absolutely is just you got to you got to see it in yourself too you got to recognize your your weaknesses you really do. and hire for your deficiencies you, you we talked about on previous yeah. shows too what was interesting is now, let's b- bring that all the way through the entire organization, right? Yeah. And that that's right. S- really speaks to having uh, a cohesive team that can carry yeah. out the mission like, with, to perfection, 100%, really, is, 100%. is what the ultimate goal, it, well, it, not even the goal, it's what ends up happening right. when you manage that. Organically, it what's yeah. happening, Organically, right? yes. Organically, yeah, it starts happening,
1: and, and I don't know if it'd be perfection that I would say, but toward the outcome that you're trying to achieve yes, right yes. i mean at the end of the day you have a mission you have a vision you have an outcome that you're trying to achieve mm-hmm. and once you have this group of level five leaders working with you to achieve that goal it starts to organically happen right and then as a leader you only interface in when you absolutely have to right To right? reinforce the culture to reinforce it right? reinforce the goals yeah, That's yeah. really all you're doing and I, I would suggest that the listeners actually check out the podcast it's right it's it's um, the podcast is with Adam Grant and he hosts this uh, the, this podcast called Work Life, mm-hmm. and it's when you know it's actually called When Strengths Become Weakness, and and they actually do they debate each other, which is kind of cool, right? Mm. Because you know between Adam and Marcus they're kind of going back on back and forth on on different ideas around this, and and Adam actually goes out there and says, well, can't that be dangerous if you think that way, right? Um, if you're if you're just solely focused on strengths and um, you know will will we'll folks start leveraging them as a crutch and over you? them mm-hmm. and and I think that you know when when Marcus came back and actually said remember strength is just an activity that empowers you it's morally neutral you can do bad with it or you can do good with it right it's your choice to mm-hmm. leverage that strength to do good so we have to remember that too right you may have these strengths that you can take advantage of but if you're just wasting them and you're not doing you're, you're doing bad by yourself right so uh, that, that's what it is it's, it's an activity that empowers you your strengths are are, are tools that you have available but you're not necessarily using them.
0: Right. Is that what you mean by don't let your expertise narrow your perspective? Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah,
1: at the end of the day, right? So so that was the next article, right? And,
0: and um,
1: the reason I chose this is kind of it fit right in with, mm-hmm. with the previous article. And, it, you know, it, it talks about don't get so embedded in your ego and so embedded in your success and so embedded in your knowledge that you lose sight of the fact that you're, Um, You're not enhancing yourself. You're not progressing, right? Because at the end of the day, you start to become parochial if you're Mm -hmm. not constantly learning and evolving and and trying to move yourself forward, right? And and what ends up happening is that ego can get in the way. And one of the examples they used was Motorola, right? So they talked about Motorola in the 1990s being 100% obsessed with Six Sigma, right? And that's uh, a a continuous improvement methodology about how they can always improve processes. They got so stuck in that that literally that was their only focus point, And look what happened to Motorola yep. in, the, in the age of digital, right? They started to fall off because mm-hmm. they were so stuck in their ego and so stuck in that Six Sigma mindset that they really couldn't get out of their own way. And yep. that's what ends up happening. You don't get out of your own way, right? So in the article, they talk about, you know, how can you identify that you're falling into, they call it the expertise trap, right? Mm-hmm. How are you falling into that? Um, you know, you start to hear things like, well, that's the way we've always done it right yeah. that starts coming out of out of people's uh out of people's mouths um you know you start having the younger staff members kind of fall away and look for new jobs right and mm-hmm. the example they used was all right if you start to see millennials jump ship mm-hmm. you're probably doing things wrong and you're stuck in your old ways why don't you learn from them right um you make old solutions kind of uh, outweigh some of the pioneering innovation so you don't really let innovation come into the culture of the, of the mm-hmm. organization um, and, and just by having this conversation right here and, and articulating it, you can see how you could fall into this parochial right. Right, uh, expertise trap. Um, so they actually go through and, and, and talk about different ways you can start um, pushing forward to, to kind of overcome that if you feel like you're getting stuck in that. Uh, number one is check your ego. right? Mm. If you're a leader in the organization, you can't be leading with an ego. You just can't, right? Um, you know revisit assumptions make sure you're bringing fresh ideas from the entire organization Mm -hmm. in so you can evaluate them learn from mistakes right don't don't sit back and say you want to know what I made a mistake but it's okay I got this because I know you know I'm the best of the best at what I do no learn from it go back and actually evaluate why you made those mistakes um, and, and really allow your teammates your team to become innovators and teachers
0: Mm -hmm. allow them
1: to do that right give them the room to make mistakes but also give them the room to innovate
0: that's it's interesting in in listening to uh good to great uh, along with what you were saying Mm. a a little earlier was he describes and sometimes in this book and if you haven't read the book is it jim collins Collins, Collins. jim collins right uh it's a great book and sometimes and i'm listening to the audio sometimes i feel like he's describing a situation that i him just so close to that's right. right that's right and when he describes you have this young innovative company that then starts to mature mm-hmm. at some turning point goes oh we need like real management and, and right. real people we need to and mature. They come in <laughs> and they trash the culture essentially yeah. but right, the way right, he right. describes it is so spot on mm-hmm. dude like i mean sp- you know it people is. with mpas and in traditional That's business right. they come in and they enforce yep. the rules and then there's all this red tape right. and then the, the company does this and then the, the founders get you know frustrated and then they want to leave the culture like i'm like oh my god you like you just described like yeah. so many so different many companies that we that we've tracked
1: maybe some yep. that we've worked for right. right and
0: seen the progression
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it it's, it's one of those scenarios where um, if you allow your culture to be consumed by those type of yes. you know uh, outside influences mm-hmm. <laughs> it, which it, can become inside influences and 100 they, very quick they do very quickly right and once they do very it, quickly it's game over. that's right that's right and uh you know I, I think it's a beautiful thing if you have a very um i'll call it a mature culture right i don't want to mm-hmm. call it a business mature culture i want to call it an internal mature culture right not to let that go yeah right allow that so innovation what? to continue to happen don't don't get caught up in the bureaucracy right because if if it starts taking you down that path of the expertise Gap, mm-hmm. right? That trap that you can get into, um, it may not be worth having those relationships, right? Because it's just gonna, it's gonna turn you into the rule of the 1990s, yeah. And that's not where you want to be. No. All right. So one of the last articles cities I had, yes. Country. So this was insanely interesting to me, right? Because number one, I played in the public sector for a while, right? Mm-hmm. So I know uh, municipal and state government and how it operates. Um, and and this was huge, right? It was it was really along the lines of this big push now for smart cities. And the one thing that caught my eye reading this was the fact that security was not mentioned once or privacy was not mentioned once in the entire article at all. It's all about
0: all of those benefits.
1: It is, right? And and it's all about, you know, let's take the technologies that are out there today, start infusing them into our our governments, our local Mm -hmm. governments, our state governments, right, and have them collect data collect data about public transport, collect data about air quality and about energy production and all of these different things where they're, you know, they're really sending out there the whole IOT thing, right? But I look at it in the public sectors, those things existed, right? Mm -hmm. You had, you uh, you know, water departments who had smart valves with, I think, control with a SCADA Mm -hmm. system from somewhere else. But now it's about taking all of that data, collecting it, and putting it all together, right? Right, and how
0: anonymized is that? Exactly. That's, That's the danger. what I'm when saying. We're right. When we started talking about the term big data years ago, right? Yep. yep. It, it's all about how anonymized it is, right? And then how it's used. After the more anonymized it is, the less evil things sure. that can be sure. done with it, right? But it's then the I difference say- between saying like. Jason wastes a lot of water and Paul does sure. it. therefore our bills might be different right. based right. on on what we're doing, Absolutely. right? Um, our
1: activities. Yeah.
0: And, and But then if you tie that into uh, other data points, mm-hmm. well, now if they know how much water Paul uses and that's not anonymized and it's shared with right. all these other things, right. like... You know, was Paul doing something bad. That's right. right? And, 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 and more so with electricity. I mean, sure. Talk about and, it. And, and I mean... Gu- growing they, something in his house that he shouldn't be de- growing? De- that's you know? right.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to allow them to, number one, profile us if they need to, right? right. Because who's to say that data that's anonymized can't be kind of all put together... De-anonymized. But de-anonymized, yes.
0: right? And, 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 and not just from one particular source. We've right. talked about this on the that's shows right. in the past. How you de-anonymize data is Mm -hmm. very very interesting and
1: and the entire concept was generate more data for our smart cities that's Mm -hmm. what that's the focus that's the outcome they're looking for is let's generate as much data as we possibly can under the guise of improve various aspects of the daily life of our citizens right right i know from working in government and being in government for a while that government doesn't do a lot efficiently yeah. Or, or, yeah. Right. So 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 now you're you know if we're worried if we're worried about DM. the Amazons and
0: the Googles of the world, holy crap, should we be worried about government? Right. <laughs> right. Well, <and> yeah, it's, <laughs> but the way I think of it is, you know, if you ever um, been on a college campus, let's say, yeah. and you see these pre, you know, there's walkways that are predefined mm-hmm. between all the different buildings, and you notice in some, it, I don't know, at least me like the hacker, I like to notice where people have sure. been walking over the grass, and over time have developed. Uh, a bare spot in the grass yeah. that represents a path that we're taking. Now, that's some right. schools would be like, that's cool, we'll just make that a walkway. A walkway because right? it is already. And right. But that's right. a, a simple example of studying yep. data and yep. how it can help that's right. You know, in the smaller cities, yeah. right. But right? But how many municipalities have you been in where you see that, that same situation where mm-hmm. there's a bare path and it's just nothing's being my, done? My, so my, my, my point fear. is they could have the data and not act upon it. <laughs> like, having data is great, but you have to take sure. action or you act
1: upon it in the wrong fashion, right? right? Because if they take that same path concept and they say, <laughs> They play grass and put signs up. No, 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 no don't wait, wait, walk wait. Here. No, Jason Albuquerque walks across that path every single day. Mm-hmm. He's the one causing the path. Um, maybe I need to tax Jason Albuquerque. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> a
0: little more. Yeah. If Jason <laughs> Albuquerque, he's going to pay for that grass. Th- he's going to pay for that walkway. And the sign that we now have to put up to say, don't <laughs> walk here.
1: That's my bigger fear. Yes. My bigger fear is it starts getting used to um, – close gaps in finances yeah, and taxes yeah. and those type of things and it's not the intent this this nirvana intent that's in this article because they could take it and use it for other things. That's my so, bigger
0: fear about this, right? So, Well, Jason, thank you very much uh, for doing BSW this week. Business Security Weekly is now complete for this week. Thank you everyone for listening and watching. We'll see you next time.